0: Hello and welcome to the final episode of our One Great 150 series. Not the whole, not the whole podcast. (laughs)
1: No, that won't end ever. No, we've got too many ideas. Um, It will end when we're dead. (laughs) I'm Alex. I'm Sabrina. Uh, But
0: yeah, this is the final episode of this series, which has been covering, well, 150 years, but then we also actually started a lot earlier. Um of Winnipeg history and uh if we've done this correctly this should be coming out the day after Winnipeg was incorporated 150 years ago yeah so 150
1: years in one day yeah um what what are you doing to celebrate Sabrina well we're having a live show on November 8th yes and I am putting 150 candles into a jeans cake (laughs) by the time this episode airs I will have done that already we will have succeeded at putting 150 candles in a genie's cake. I have really big ambitions in general. <laughs> <laughs> um, if we sound a little different, we're recording online today, so we're not in the studio. Yes, because I've decided to celebrate by getting through. Alex loves a party. She loves <laughs> to be contagious. Yeah,
0: so that's why we're uh, recording virtually, but um,
1: hopefully that's, it's still going to be a fun episode for you. It will be lots of fun. I'm excited about it. It's also different than any of the episodes we've done so far. Yeah so when we had discussed like what people we wanted to cover we realized
0: that we could really only go so recent because it gets a little weird to cover
1: people who are still alive. I feel like a lot of this though is that we do like older history generally like. That's true too. We're kind of in a safe spot of like if we talk about someone from 1901 the chances of them being alive to contest our reporting is extremely slim. <laughs> yeah. I guess we could get, you know, some angry grandchildren. But but like, yeah, once we get into like the 80s and onwards, it gets so much weirder because it's also lived memory.
0: Yeah. Like even like my Georges Farre and my Daphne Ojig episodes, I felt like I was, I had to be a lot more careful. I felt like I wanted to be like consulting people because, you know, it's, it's a lot more kind of... um
1: I don't know in people's minds. Yeah, totally. So what we were kind of faced with then is like, well, if we're going to try and cover the last 40 years, how do we do it? Who do we talk about? And I feel like the only person we had like pitched the idea for was Fred Penner. Yeah, which felt like kind of a silly way to end. <laughs> See, yeah. So we've <laughs> incorporated Fred Penner into a larger a larger idea.
0: Yeah, what we've done is we've basically asked a bunch of our favorite Winnipeggers to help us tell the last 40 years of Winnipeg history.
1: Yeah, it's, I don't know, I'm very excited about it. It's, I think, one of the cooler things we've done. Yeah, it's been Once a lot hyper of fun. the up too, too much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's been a lot of fun to put together. Um, I hope it'll be a lot of fun to listen to Yeah, we'll be around, um, but yeah, we basically asked people um, to introduce themselves, to tell us their relationship to Winnipeg, and then to tell us about something, any event that was memorable to them. Big or small. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and we had planned to start this episode in about 1980, but our first guest had a story from 1975 that was too good to pass up.
2: Hello, I'm Al Simmons. I'm an entertainer. And I've born and raised in Winnipeg and uh, live now in Anola, Manitoba, but uh, lived in Winnipeg for the uh, first years of my life till I was maybe 30, something like that. I, I love Winnipeg. There's, uh, I love the changing of the seasons and, uh, you know, even mosquito season. You know, you c- get over it, folks. You just wipe them away or swat them, you know, you can dress properly and they, they only come out certain hours, you know, get over it, everybody. But you know, I wouldn't spread the rumor too much that Winnipeg's a great place because then more people will live here, more people will move here, and there won't be room for any of us. There'll be no parking downtown. Uh in 1975, I was bayman uh for the Hudson's Bay Company. Uh they uh uh called my agent at the time who was Len Andre. They called him and said, We're looking for Bayman. They they had Bayman super weak or something like that every now and then. So they called my agent and said, we we want to have a bayman. Who do you have anybody you could recommend? And my agent said, Do you want a funny bayman or a muscle man bayman? And they said, We'll take the funny guy. Uh, they, I, they said we got to make a costume and I said well my wife can do it so she made me a costume uh Bayman costume and I wore it and, and I went to the Bay I can't remember when it was super Saturday every once a month or twice some twice a month or something and I dress up as Bayman and I could uh do whatever I wanted I said what should I do like and they said well you just come dressed as Bayman and do whatever you want wherever you want so I'd get dressed and just run around the store I had no act I would just run uh from place to place and I would the only thing I would say is everything all right here is everything under control I, I had no real function and sometimes I would say I'm fighting inflation but I I really wasn't doing anything so I just run around I ran I could go wherever I wanted in the store there was no restriction so I would run from the elevator uh in through the men's department through a back door in the men's department I'd end up in the office space for the employees working for the Bay on computers and whatever typewriters and could run through there or uh in uh, in the the um the paddle wheel i'd run into the into the k- kitchen and i came carrying i came out carrying the cook i can't remember what did i carry the cook or did he carry me out of there and it was just mayhem and then as i got used to it i said to them do i have to stay in the store and they said no you do whatever as long as you come so one day it was a light snow falling just very light snow so I ran to St Boniface and back as the Bayman and then another time uh, I got the Bay Flyer I got them to give me a, a Bayman uh bus pass it had a picture of Bayman on it and I I uh, got on the bus and rode the bus to Polo Park reading the bay flyer on the bus and then i got to polo park and i got out and i just ran slowly through uh polo park and there was no bay there at the time and uh so two security guards two burly security guards grabbed me by each elbow and i made them physically carry me out of the mall one on each arm they actually lifted me and carried me right out of the mall and deposited me on the sidewalk and said, you can't come back because I had a like a, a mask on and all that. Anyway, it was great fun working at the bay. And now the bay is gone.
1: Yeah. So I loved that story so much. So I was in on this recording. Some of them I was like, I had a day job, so I couldn't be there. Yeah um i said it on this one i feel like when i re-listened to it it was weird not hearing like myself laugh yeah (laughs) i think like we both laughed for the entire interview we were just on mute so you couldn't hear it yeah no we were having a great time with this one
0: um also al simmons has sent us some incredible photos of Bayman,
1: which we will of course post for you There's one where he's, like, lounging in a superhero costume on a bed somewhat, like, coquettishly with, like, a telephone. I assume it's, like, a bed in the Bay Furniture Department. I would assume so, but then, like, there's a lot of questions about the concept of the Bay Man. I think what we loved most is that there was no concept. Yeah, yeah, and, like, the concept seems to be, we'll put a guy in a suit and he can just kind of zoom around the store. Yeah. (laughs) And sometimes Um, not in the
0: store. Al also, he told us some other really incredible stories that we didn't have time for in this episode, but I think we'll maybe turn into like a bonus episode later. So
1: or we'll find something else to do with them we'll later. We'll find something
0: or... to do with them, but stay tuned for those. But yeah, it's interesting that the Bay was so significant to like the first few episodes of this series, right? With Sarah Ballenden and Goulet and that a hundred years later, you know, I mean, even Penguins too, right? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like, it doesn't have the kind of political significance anymore obviously but was still so like central to downtown and to people's experience of the
1: city yeah I mean if you talk to anyone that was like I mean anyone older than us basically they'll have a memory of like oh going to like the paddle and getting the jello cups like yeah I think I did that once when I was growing up because like that was a whole day for us was going into the city to do that but right yeah and for me
0: like the Bay store downtown used to be my, like, happy place when I was going to the U of W. Like, if, if something really upsetting happened, <laughs> I would just go and, like, wander because, like, it was quiet and big and no one would really talk to you.
1: And this is going to reveal maybe a little bit too much of, like, our personal interests. Second floor bathroom in the Bay. We so are amazing. Yeah. Space. <laughs> they yeah, have, like, but- powder room stalls, basically. Cause it's an Yeah, old, like, like chairs, like fifties, rows of mirrors. It was a neat space. And yeah, like even I remember, like I would also go, like I'd walk through the bay when it was cold and I'd putter around and go check out their furniture displays. Mm-hmm. Went to the paddle wheel a few times when I was little. And yeah, anyone you talk to that remembers going downtown when they were younger is probably going to the bay.
0: Yeah. But yeah, I think we'll touch on the bay a little bit again at the very end of this episode.
1: Yeah. So, like, a lot of changes have happened to the, like, downtown area. Obviously, the Bay is closed. We'll talk about in a little bit. So, like, we removed that feature of downtown Winnipeg. And then um, in the late 70s, and so not long after Al Simmons is hired as the Bay Man, <laughs> uh, Portage and Main closes. Yeah. Which is um, both complicated and not so complicated. Right. And <laughs> how it's talked about. There's a lot of big feelings about it i would say but like the gist of it is that it was closed as a business deal to push pedestrians into an underground shopping mall for the trizek company
3: mm-hmm.
1: that was building an office tower and it was part of this pattern of like prioritizing cars over pedestrians that was pretty common in like developments in the city at the time and it's also like a big time for malls generally Like, if you think of the 70s and even to the 80s, mall culture was, like, really developing as a thing. Right, that's when we get, like, Polo Park and everything else. Yeah, so the hope is that people would be going through this, like, shopping mall and checking it out. And it's kind of blown into a much bigger debate. But, like, for 116 years, that street was open to the public.
0: Yeah, I don't. Events. I don't even know if people, if we say underground shopping mall, I don't even know if people will know what we're talking about. That we're talking about, like the concourse in Winnipeg Square.
1: Yeah, it's it's a shopping mall only vaguely, and that there's how many retail stores are there? Not a lot. It's like a and the concourse like a- is not a lot, but underneath the different towers, I guess there's more. Mm-hmm. There's essentially like four points of access on each corner of the street, and like the Fairmont has businesses underneath, and then it connects to Winnipeg Square, which I think has has or had a Hallmark store. I haven't been in there in a while. These days it's largely become like restaurants for various office workers. Regardless, 1979, Portage and Main closes. An era of crossing the street ends. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, yeah, and speaking of shops, our next guest talks about two other much-loved Winnipeg stores.
4: Hi, I'm Ron Robinson. Born and bred in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Uh, grew up here, went to school here. <clears throat> um, have had all my employment history here. Uh, Windsor Park Collegiate, University of Winnipeg. Editor of the United Earth for a week before I was turfed out. Uh, then uh, ended up through a variety of occupations, always a good idea, to working at Eaton's, then the McNally Robinson Booksellers, and finally, CBC Radio and the pension is good. I did learn that a break makes you want to stay here longer, because the older I get, by the end of middle of February, it goes on and on and on. Uh, it's not a great city to be in if you're not mobile. You know, you know the sidewalks, you know the roads, you, everything from cycling to When you have to push some poor soul in their wheelchair in the middle of winter, you think, I think we could do a better job. Uh being old and crotchety and uh being old is by nature, there's always a backstory to the backstory, to the story. And so when I say that McNally Robinson booksellers came to be in nineteen eighty one, the reason that happened is because we had Eaton's, Eaton's department store here in Winnipeg. And I ended up through Uh, driving cab and doing this and that and ended up at Eaton's through industrial overload, sorting coat hangers. From there, I worked my way up to become the buyer of the book department here in the downtown store in Winnipeg until one day a mighty scythe swept through Eaton's and 25 of us were viewed as redundant all at the same time. The good news is that a number of people set up their own businesses uh, out of that, and some had even before, because Eaton's was a great training ground. We had a management trainee program there. Well, Eaton's was a private company, and letting 25 people go meant you did not have to fully report what you had done and why, because the limit was at about 50. So the free press wanted to know more, but Eaton's was unwilling to talk. By that time, I was doing freelance work at CBC, and I said, I'd love to tell my version of, it, of the story. And I told the story of uh, Eden's Let Us All Go, uh, and my background had been the buyer for so many years, et cetera. We had done very well, but Paul and Holly McNally saw that story in the Winnipeg Free Press, and they called me, and from that story, they said, We think you're the kind of man we'd like to open a bookstore with. And I said, I would like to show Eaton's what a big mistake they made. So we talked and we talked, hammered things out. Uh, They had the money. I had the experience. So it took a while to get the place put together. I can remember we had to go to Toronto to buy our initial stock. Luckily, I still was on good terms with some of the people at Eaton's. We then set up shop at uh, Corner of Grant and Keniston. And if you go by there now, there's a huge superstore there across the street. There was nothing there then. It was an empty field. But we realized the income level and the parking and how far people would come. It was a good location. Now, here's a particularly Winnipeg angle. For the first year or two, people would come in and say, oh, are you part of the Rand McNally chain? And we'd say, no, we are Winnipegers. This is our own store. As if people couldn't believe that some Winnipegers could set up a professional, bright, attractive, interesting, quality bookstore on their own without being part of a chain. That was always struck me as odd and why we really always need to beat the drum to tell people who you are, where you are. Well, we were there for the first year or two, but business partnerships like marriages don't always work out. Paul took off to start an advertising firm. Holly and I were together in a small, in that store, and we couldn't agree where the sun would come up. We were like chalk and cheese. She was both ambitious and, I would say, She'd been a social worker. There was an element of the pugnacious about her, but I didn't have that in my character at all. So eventually we realized this isn't working out very well, and I certainly didn't want to see the company go under or disappear. But we'd had differences right from the start. Holly didn't want to carry any paperbacks. I think she associated them with drugstores and kind of uh, trash. Whereas we knew penguins were doing better and better and spreading, you know, through many different categories. And uh, I didn't want to be part of a noble failure.
1: So I actually have a McNally Robinson memory, kind of. Okay, yeah, tell me. But again, I am not like, I didn't grow up in Winnipeg. So anytime I went to the city was like inexperience. Especially if we went further than like St. Patel Mall, that was kind of the boundary for like most of me and my friends. When I was in high school I was part of like a bunch of different school groups and one of them one of the perks was that we gotta go to uh, McNally Robinson and pick out new books for the school library and I remember being so like impressed by like the spiral staircase up the kids area and stuff it was cute yeah
0: yeah I um I also have I have a lot of memories from McNally Robinson when I was young my parents were well, they were publishers' representatives. Basically, they were booksellers to bookstores. And so, you know, I'd get to go and like hang out at McNally's. We'd go to the go to the restaurant and get like one of the little Winnie the Pooh shaped cookies. I don't, I don't think they do those anymore. But yeah, when Ron Robinson founded it, it was actually in a different location. So of course he he wasn't with it for that long with the store. Um, and since then it's moved to its current Grant Park location, but yeah, I think it's impressive that we've managed to build this like pretty huge independent
1: bookstore and sustain it for so long. The part that really made me laugh is when people would go into the store and talk about like, is this like really Winnipeg owned? Yeah. It's just, you know, it's been a constant for the past, like even just like 30 years that people are like, surely that can't be ours. No, but, like surely Functional. this must be a chain. Like, no, this is a thing we made.
0: We can do things occasionally. Um, Yeah. And the other thing, Ron, like when I was speaking to him that he really gave credit to the current owners for is that they really feature Winnipeg authors as well. There's like a big section there on, you know, Winnipeg
1: history, Winnipeg novels. Yeah. And they, I mean, they always have kind of like book talks and new events and stuff. I've been to a few there.
0: Yeah. um, Of course, in that uh, in that clip, Ron also mentioned Eaton's.
1: Um, Which is as much of a staple of downtown Winnipeg as the Bay was, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But did not last as long
1: as McNally Robinson. So maybe they shouldn't have sacked Ron Robinson. No, I mean, well, here's the thing, though. It lasted a lot longer than McNally Robinson in the long term. Well, okay, like in terms of actual number of years, you mean?
0: Yeah, because it opened up in Winnipeg in like 1912. <laughs> sure, I guess it remains to be seen if mcnally Robinson will eventually beat their record.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, Eaton's goes bankrupt in like 1999. The building is demolished in 2003. And like, I don't remember the building at all, but I've talked to a lot of people in the heritage community and outside of it. And I know there's like some pretty strong feelings still about the Eaton's building, the demolition, like the circumstances around it. But other than that, yeah. MTS Center or Canada Life. Canada Life Centre, I think, now. It's gone through a few different iterations,
0: but yeah, I think also that demolition was a little bit of a wake-up call, maybe, in terms of, like, oh, maybe we're knocking down a few too many buildings.
1: I feel like we have that wake-up call every couple of years. Okay, fair. (laughs) (laughs) So when we were planning this and we were, like, listing out potential events that, like, people might bring up, this was not even on my radar. No, me neither. This
0: next event is a little bit before either of us were born.
5: Uh, my name is Rosemary Barton. I am the chief political correspondent for CBC News a uh, resident of Ottawa. But um, my hometown is Winnipeg. It was 1986. So I was then 10 um, and it was a blizzard. Um, and I remember it because it was like, unlike I mean, everyone has stories about Winnipeg and how cold it is and how much snow there was. But this was epic. And it, it may be because I was 10 that it was epic. But but I, I don't care. I'm just going to stick with that in memory because it was epic. Not only was there, um, uh, was it a snow day, which was, as you know, a, a huge, huge deal. It was like more than 30 centimeters of snow overnight. So I remember, obviously, when it's a snow day, you're, you're thrilled. And I remember getting dressed up. Um, and, and in the eighties, we still did that thing where I don't know if people still do it because they didn't really have, um, like neck warmers and stuff. We would wrap the scarf around our forehead and then down over our mouths. So there was just like this amount, just your eyeballs poking out. So I remember getting all layered up and we went outside, we went out the front and you couldn't see really anything. And I don't know if I'm making this up because who knows if you can trust your memory. But I remember the snow being up to my waist, literally up to my waist. Now I was 10, so it's possible. But I remember just kind of dropping into the snow, like, Um, and then realizing, okay, I can't, how am I going to be able to walk around? So I actually, at the time, my best friend lived about 17 houses down uh, in Riverview, in the neighborhood of Riverview where my parents still are. And so I went back and I got my cross country skis and I skied the block down to her house. Um, and I honestly, I can't like really remember what else I did that day, but I remember so vividly, um, doing that and just, and the amount of snow that was, uh, was there that day. There's like lots of of other great and interesting memories I have around the flood and all, you know, all the rest of it. But that one is the one that brings me uh, right back to my childhood and really brings me the most, the most joy because it is so, it was so Winnipeg and it was so perfect in my mind.
1: So apparently there's like 35 centimeters of snow falling on a ping over 11 hours in this blizzard, which would then be piled on top of like normal snow. Yeah. Like, yeah, up to a 10-year-old's waist makes sense. She was saying like, oh, like, you know, maybe it wasn't,
0: maybe I was exaggerating, but I'm like, no, I think it probably was up to a 10-year-old's waist.
1: And it's like windy too, right? So there's this huge like snow drifts and snow banks that make it impossible to see. There's like cars abandoned in the snow um it takes like a couple of days for us to be plowed for more than emergency vehicle. so just like chaos yeah the photos from this period just look actually insane I would yeah and there is I think a magic to like a snowstorm or a blizzard as a kid that doesn't exist uh, isn't there? because like we as adults now we have to like clean it and like shovel cars out and make sure we can leave our building but like as a kid I work from home now, so even if it does snow, I still have to work. (laughs) This is the real tragedy of the modern era.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, um, as the 80s go on, though, it somehow becomes obvious that closing an intersection to foot traffic is not enough to save downtown Winnipeg. Are you shocked by this, Sabrina? (laughs) No. No so there's this big project to revitalize downtown with there's a bunch of construction projects that are all kind of part of this one larger project so there's like the skywalk portage place mall and also the forks I think a lot of people don't know that that was all like one thing yeah so these were obviously kind of a mixed success portage place has been struggling a little bit over the last few years I've talked about how I kind
1: of love portage place despite having been pepper sprayed there (laughs) I think it's like it's a beautiful building it really is The clock tower in there. It's from the old city hall. Yeah. Some whimsical charm to it. The IMAX in there was fun. I used to do field trips to that. Oh, I really miss the IMAX there. PTE's in there, and I've seen some fun shows at PTE. Yeah,
0: there used to be, um, also, like, another independent theatre there. Right. I went to see, like, yeah, I went to see, like, a couple of French movies there in school.
1: Fun. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I've got kind of a soft-ish spot for Portage Place Mall. I don't know. It's a very, like, 70s, 80s idea to think, if we build a big mall, it'll fix downtown. That's true. (laughs) Um, I do think the Skywalk is a pretty good idea. I get it for, like, weather reasons. It's not great for, like, storefront retail. Fair. Um, I do enjoy it for weather reasons. I used to live um, in a place where
0: I could basically walk the entire skywalk from my apartment to my job
1: well you say that and yet
0: and yet <laughs> the doors were often locked for no reason at it random never times. the
1: same place never the same place
0: no I mean it was worse during COVID when they were like we're gonna lock all the doors on weekends for no
1: reason trap Um, people in different buildings around downtown a fun prank
0: um but of those three obviously the forks has been the biggest success I mean it's had another revitalization in the last few years and you know is one of the
1: kind of centerpieces of Winnipeg yeah um my aunt was telling me this joke the other day that like when you bring someone to Winnipeg on the first day take them to the forks on the second day you take them to the forks (laughs) on the third day you take them to the forks yeah (laughs) it's become yeah it's become such like a central point of winnipeg and it's i don't know like it used to be genuinely rail yards like there was nothing there that would bring people in until this point in time until the 70s and now it feels like such a like staple of like winnipeg life
0: yeah, I'm like, where where did you go on your, like, Saturday off when you didn't have any firm plans before? Where did people suggest for first
1: dates? Right? <laughs> so it's also around um, this time. So we're coming in after, like, the Juba years of, like, we'll tear everything down and build new modernist stuff. That's failed. We've kind of done this downtown portage redevelopment. And the exchange, as we know, it's also developed around this point in time. Um, the plan to demolish everything has obviously not panned out. So then there's all of these old buildings that people have to find stuff to do with. And it leads to this like really interesting merging of like old buildings with new features. So we get stuff like uh, the Kingshead pub actually comes out pretty early into this redevelopment process. Um, art cool. space in this big old Galt warehouse building. Um, Cinema Tech was in there a bit later on. There's art galleries, there's artist studios. Some of that still continues today, although like people have been priced out in the year since. But it's only get into the like '80s that we see this redevelopment in the area start to take place.
6: My name is Fred Penner. I'm born and raised in Winnipeg. Uh, I'm a prairie boy at heart, and uh, and I have made a career of five decades of traveling. Across the country around the world making music for families, children, and all. The the first one that popped into into my mind was there used to be a store on the corner of Maine and uh Banatine, Bird Saddlery. It was a uh, basically a tax shop, you know, where where they had you know early early on it would have been a saddles and and braces and things, things relating to, uh, to 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 leather products, that kind of thing. And I had a uh, conversation with the owner at one point, and he said, "I want to show you something." And we went down into the basement of Bert Saddlery, and at the far corner there were three, I think, cells, like jail cells. Anyway, it was uh, a, just a very bizarre thing that few people, I'm sure, know that there is a, a catacomb underneath the city that, that led to uh, a holding cell. I thought that's a pretty interesting bit of bit of his, history. Um, but just watching the changes that have happened in the city over the last, well, 40 years plus have, have been really interesting. Buildings coming down crosswalks across Portage Avenue being lost you know so uh, I remember we used to be able to cross Portage Avenue at one point. there's been battles around that um yeah I've I I know the city I know the city well and in the back of my mind one day I'd like to do a uh, a sort of walk through you know get get a video camera going and saying this is what used to be here I remember this this name used to be that name. The Walker Theater used to be, or the Burton Cummings used to be, the Walker Theater, and you know. So the history that is that is Winnipeg uh, is is very deep in my septuagenarian mind.
1: So we've talked about tunnels before. Yeah, there's um, a lot of rumors about the tunnels. Many of them are nefarious than I think the reality of the tunnels are. Yeah, like, my understanding is that most of them were used
0: either for heating or a little bit for, like, transporting things between buildings, maybe.
1: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the ones from the Bird Saddle rebuilding would have been for transporting goods from yeah. the store to the warehouse. Um, and the cells that uh, Fred is talking about seeing were from the old jail that would have been in the area as part of the old, like, courthouse city hall complex from the 1873, 1874-ish, a little later. Um the jail was built directly underneath the courthouse so the premise was i think you'd crawl up like a ladder oh (laughs) wow and um he would have had to see them before 1980 because the buildings directly above the jail burned down and then rubble's filling the sub basement so they're completely inaccessible they're not there anymore there is i think one photo of the
0: jail cells yeah yeah there's like an old grainy photo from like the 50s
1: Yes. So, um, we're not going to see those jail cells anytime soon. Every time I told people that on tours, they're like, oh man, but just, I don't know if you'd want to go in there guys. No, I have heard that
0: in the basement of the building that used to be the Burt, there is still sort of like a boarded up door that goes somewhere.
1: Yeah. I mean, also some of those might've been like fire tunnels too, right? Like the old steam heat systems would have run through there as well. Sure. There's all kinds of stuff. The yeah. tunnels just weren't that exciting. No. <laughs> Unfortunately.
0: Um, but we do have a lot of cool heritage buildings in the area. And I think like that's really what like Fred was getting to there. that We're just like so lucky to have that built heritage
1: in our city. Yeah. And it's Winnipeg is interesting that we have it because a lot of other prairie cities would have lost neighborhoods like that around the same time in places like Edmonton, you see a sort of bigger demolition because obviously there are cities that are making more money than we are so that's really funny we're like we can't afford to make new buildings so genuinely I think part of the reason that we have the exchange district is that we couldn't afford to replace them in like in the short term everyone I'm sure was very sad about that in the long term though it gives us genuinely a national historic site yeah so it's designated in 1997 but there's not like any of the like restrictions that come with that I feel like I need to say this every time I talk about it because it's not a protected neighborhood there's only a plaque Okay so I didn't I didn't know the difference between that. Yeah I think it I don't know how like the national designations work but like it's mostly they just put up a sign saying like this is a historic site it, the signs in Old Market Square. Okay so it's just
0: a recognition that like yeah this is a cool old thing not not yeah. that like hey we're formally
1: protecting this in any way. Yeah. If it was say like a UNESCO World Heritage site then there would be like restrictions on development and construction in the neighborhood that hasn't been imposed yet. I think they pitched a UNESCO designation at one point and people pushed back against it pretty heavily. Mm. So what tends to matter more in this sense is that we have a lot of city designated heritage buildings in the neighborhood. Those city designations come with like preservation rules and protected characteristics. But we still have a lot of really fascinating buildings that the city has written like really detailed reports on.
0: Yeah, yeah. Those reports are useful as well for our research pretty often. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and it's around that same time, um, that the spaghetti factory opens in the exchange. My dad actually worked there. That was his first job, I think. Right? Yes, you told me that. He told us for ages he was a dishwasher. And we, we found out just in the past couple years that what he meant was that he, like, loaded the dishes into a dishwasher. We were like, what? We were, like, picturing you washing them all by hand all these years. (laughs) (laughs) But no, he's just putting them in a machine and hitting a button. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so obviously that later moved to the forks where it is now. Um, and by the late 80s and into the 90s, some other buildings have turned into music venues.
1: Yeah, so we have sorry to talk over you here. This is just old tour stuff, so it's coming around for it. (laughs) Um so we have like the Royal Albert Arms Hotel in the St. Charles. They were, I think, disco venues, or the St. Charles was a disco venue at one point, but into the 80s and 90s, they became punk venues. So there's, like, a pretty big punk and, like, grunge music scene in Winnipeg at the time. And Green Day actually plays at the Royal Albert. But, like, it was before they had made it, like, big, so to speak. But they did actually have an early, like, concert at the Royal Albert. And out of this punk scene, we get uh, local bands like Propagandi and uh, the one and only John K. Sampson.
7: I'm John Sampson Fellows is what I've been going by lately. John K. Sampson, also known as. Um, I. I'm a cultural worker and uh educator here in Winnipeg songwriter weaver I've uh was born in Winnipeg in 1973 so I've been here for 50 years yeah it's uh uh, I find it a deeply complex and frustrating and beautiful place uh that um I can't stop thinking about yeah there's something really um uh curious and um strange and unique and yeah all those things about this place you know it's a marginalized place and I think um yeah the margins are a good perch to to think about things from Uh, I got your question and I immediately thought of the 1996 uh Winnipeg Jets um leaving Winnipeg um the the Winnipeg Jets not the zombie Jets that we have now but the the Winnipeg Jets um yeah it was a fascinating time uh to be a Winnipegger for me and really kind of set the tone for um a lot of my um political thinking for the rest of my life actually so I was part of the thin ice activist group that opposed public funding for the Winnipeg Jets at the time there was this kind of movement to save the jets from being sold to a team in the, or a city in the united states and um leading up to that a whole bunch of things happened uh all three levels of government suddenly sort of um offered to get involved offered to secure losses for the team offered to help build a new arena um all of which would have saddled both the city and province with debt for uh, more than a generation and I got together with this activist community who were thinking about um poverty in our city basically was was the kind of purpose of the group and this seemed like a glaring example of what uh the priorities were for the captains of industry and the people in power politically um showing what what their priorities were and how disconnected they were from the reality of life in winnipeg where um we had we had at the time the highest child poverty rate of any city in canada um, we had these uh, incredible um disparities of of, um, of poverty and and despair <laughs> and and um all these things happening in winnipeg uh but these kind of um, small group of millionaires and um, city officials were suddenly willing to expend all this effort and money on something didn't I mean mattered greatly but um, something that wasn't as important as human lives right so this was this is where we started from our perspective from and organized around and I was I was young I was like 23 I guess at the time something like that and it was the first real community organizing that I'd been involved with I didn't I didn't do that much as I recall but I watched it all kind of come together so this is before the kind of entire city got involved so I I feel like the the entire city was kind of suddenly there was this huge drive to save the Jets and citizens of Winnipeg, you know, the stories of kids emptying their piggy banks and, um, and, uh, cashing in RSPs and, and all these things to donate to the jets was, was, um, really incredibly troubling to see. And also, you felt so, so much for these people. And, um, so it was this very troubling time, uh, trying to figure out, um, what was happening in Winnipeg's brain um and um and trying to trying to be empathetic about it but also trying to be like to put your foot down and say what are our priorities for who we are as Winnipeggers um what do we care about um and it was it was hard too like it was hard to be a member of thin ice at the time we were um we were vilified I I mean I I was totally behind the scenes um but I know like like um Jim Silver at one point had to have police protection and there were people egging his house and and um uh yeah I we had a we had a phone line set up uh in an office at the Union Center for the thin ice organization and I remember I had a I did a shift on the phones one afternoon and i remember just why i don't know why we had a telephone line thought that was a good idea but we just had people calling to scream at us like all day (laughs) like it was it was awful right and also it was it was awful because a lot of the reasons um that they would yell at us were were troubling were like um racist for example um this idea that our idea that um, that uh, that Winnipeg couldn't afford um, to support a sports team when so many people were living in poverty um, became uh, like was racialized by callers who would who would say racist things about Indigenous people and it was just this it was really dark it got pretty dark I guess the thing too that we can all I think all sides could come together and agree on is that gary bettman sucks right so like that's still a thing i think that we can that's that's what i came out with it out of it with anyway was that like we may disagree on this but um the powers behind the nhl are are terrible and, and uh and are awful for the game of hockey
1: so i've been the designated sports person for this episode
0: yeah because
1: i because don't know anyone doesn't know anything about hockey and does not remember my hockey episode from three years ago.
0: <laughs> I remember that there was a fun, weird chant
1: and that's about all I got. Yeah. Hobble, gobble, razzle, dazzle, sift, boom, ba. <laughs> that's right. The Jets don't have that chant. Sadly. Yet. And I, yeah, I don't think people are going to like it if we try and reintroduce that. <laughs> So, like, Winnipeg has had the Jets since 1972. It's first a team in the World Hockey Association. They joined the NHL in 1979. So, in their first season, they get some pretty big-name players like Norm Bedwin, Christian Bortolo, and Bobby Hall. And they start importing in European talent. They're one of the first hockey teams in North America to actually do this. So, they are bringing in, like, players from Sweden. They're pretty successful in the World Hockey Association. Um, but when that falls, they're actually one of three teams that are brought into the NHL. Okay. So they do well enough that they're like ported over into the National Hockey League. Mm-hmm. But when they join, they have to sign this thing called a reclamation draft that like it really negatively impacts the team. They lose their top three play- or their top six players. And like there's a bunch of other penalties for and that basically mean that whatever it made the Jets great in the WHA was kind of removed. Interesting. When they join the NHL. But they survive a pretty like rough first few years. They get players like uh Dale Chuck. Um, they're like, I don't know, a pretty cu- big cultural mainstay in the city for a very long time. And then what we see happen in the 90s is a US team start to join the NHL and join the league. And there's a bunch of like financial stuff going on here where then like Canadian players can ask for their salary at the value of the American dollar, mm-hmm. which is higher. Right. And suddenly players are now asking for more money. Um, the team, the Jets, are doing as well financially anymore. Their arena at the time is the Winnipeg Arena. It's like forty years old. It's in need of repairs. Their like box seats have like obstructed views and are pretty out of date. It's so like you'd have to maintain the venue and do major repair repairs, and the cost to keep this team is like astronomically high. Right. And ultimately, they're moved to Arizona and become the Coyotes. The Winnipeg Jets' last game of Winnipeg is in April of 1996, despite a pretty big push to save it. Um, But also, we shouldn't own a hockey team. That's crazy for a city to do. (laughs)
0: Yeah, no, I think, like, John is right there that, like, the idea that we were going to put a bunch of public funds into that would have been, like,
1: kind of horrific financially for the city. Like, sports is expensive. Yeah. The city's always, like, on the verge of being broke anyway. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> I feel like I need to have some kind of segue here about, like, the flood of
1: tears as the as the <laughs> jets leave. Well, the jets left right uh, just in time to avoid the flood of 1997. There you go. So, yeah, in 1997, we have our flood of the century, which impacts winnipeg a little less than the flood of something like 1950 did mm-hmm. because we built a duff's ditch yeah i mean like high schoolers are called out of school to help sandbag um the city archives is a really fun exhibit on this they've set up at city hall for a while they had to, like model sandbags that kids had made with like names on them there's flood relief centers in winnipeg set up because a lot of rural communities are evacuated including my own <laughs> right yeah so where did where did you go uh well I went around a little bit so a lot some people I know that didn't have like family nearby went to go stay in the city and had like hotels Mm -hmm. I know like a family friend of mine had some pictures of like his brother and him and their family dogs hanging out in a hotel room (laughs) um I went first to my aunt's house she lived a little further west and then to my grandmother's when the water got a little higher right and I can like I have a very vague memory of like sandbags outside of my grandma's yard because there was like a pretty good amount of water on her farm property too, but like lots of people I know are involved in flood relief stuff. It's something that comes up a lot when you talk to like rural Manitobans. Mm-hmm. Also, there's like commemorative sweaters and stuff from the flood of the century and books.
0: Yeah, I think you know, for people in the city, I feel like it's it's more of sort of something we talk about as like, oh yeah, that was like an interesting kind of it was a big thing that happened, but not quite as big as as people outside of the city.
1: Yeah, people having to like leave their homes. My hometown was like functionally an island, right, for the duration of that, which is crazy to think about. The pictures are wild to see. So like, obviously, Winnipeg's not super negatively impacted by the flood of '97 in the way that like it was in the flood of '1950. So, like, when we talk about the flood of 1950, it's getting into, like, the basement of downtown buildings. Remember how the ballet had to, like, completely reschedule a show? That's right, yeah. That happened, that doesn't really happen in 1997, because that floodway is redirecting water around the city, so it means that Winnipeg itself is functionally safe from the flood, which is, Mm -hmm. I imagine, such a novelty.
0: (laughs) It's the first time since, yeah, since Winnipeg started that we've been like, oh, a flood, and we're kind of okay. (laughs) Okay. I mean, it's not to say that people's houses didn't get flooded in the city because they definitely
1: did. Yeah, and like people's basements for sure did. Yes. But yeah, like the extent of the damage is so much less than Uh it would have been if the floodway hadn't been built. Yeah. So yeah, we have a downtown that's relatively safe from floods and a uh, downtown that's developing in all kinds of fun and interesting ways. And we have uh, Michael Redhead Champagne talking about his memories of Winnipeg's North End.
8: My name is Michael Redhead Champagne. I am a community organizer and helper in Winnipeg's North End, but my family is originally from Shimadawa First Nation. Well, I was born and raised in the North End of Winnipeg. And so this gives me particular feelings about the city and about the North End of the city. I think that for me, what it does is it makes me very proud of the history that the North End has with Winnipeg and specifically the impact that activism and leadership from the north end of Winnipeg has had on making safer workplaces in the labor movement and beyond, as well as in more recent years, um, the burgeoning and increasing number of indigenous initiatives that are emerging from Winnipeg's north end in the same spirit as the winnipeg general strike an event that i remember in winnipeg that is meaningful for me would be when i was a little kid i used to go to the indian and metis friendship center which was located on robinson for their holiday celebrations and they would bring like firefighters and other kind of professionals to come in and give away gifts to kids in the neighborhood And so I remember how meaningful that was to me. And that was one of my, I think that's one of my biggest, uh, one of my earliest memories of uh, being out in the community in the North End of Winnipeg. And I think that that spirit of generosity coming from a helper in the community like firefighter really set a tone for me in terms of how I see the North End, the kind of impact I want to have on the city and the type of person I want to be in the world. So I think that was a really meaningful experience for me. Well, the Indian and Métis Friendship Center, I think is a beautiful symbol of welcoming Indigenous people into urban environments. And the Indian and Métis Friendship Center in Winnipeg is historical because it was the very first Indian and Métis Friendship Center in Canada that kicked off the Friendship Center movement, which we can see today with many, many, many friendship centers across Manitoba and Canada, including a large national organization now called the National Association of Friendship Centers. And so again, another example of indigenous leadership in the North end of Winnipeg that has a large impact.
0: Yeah, so Winnipeg's Indian and Métis Friendship Center was actually the first in Canada. Today, there's a whole kind of like, organization of like various um friendship centers there's over 100 across the country um so yeah it was a cultural center it was a meeting place it also pre- provided supports to people for things like housing and employment and education um unfortunately for financial reasons the center closed in 2018 um and in 2019 I think it was the bear clan they found that one of the doors was like had been right. opened
1: yeah I remember this
0: yeah, and so there had been a bunch of vandalism inside, which, you know, was really too bad. Um, so that building was demolished, but construction is actually underway now on a new Winnipeg Indigenous Friendship Centre. Yeah, which is really cool. So, you know, I think that'll be really nice, too, for, like, people like Michael who have those, like, fond memories, right, to then be able to, like, bring their kids to a new Friendship Centre.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't know, it's nice to hear, I mean, positive talk about Winnipeg's North End, obviously that too yeah like community spirit and like volunteering and giving back yeah that too like winnipeg's
0: north end has really been sort of undersold and understudied i think
1: and i mean often like ignored by anyone with like civic power in a lot of ways yes yeah i mean if you ever try to like
0: ride your bike through the north end you'll notice just all the potholes even
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is, yeah, very true. I mean,
0: that's true everywhere, but it's worse. (laughs) I don't Um, know. The
1: one thing that's been standing up to me, too, as we do this, is the amount of, like, Indigenous firsts that have happened here in terms of, like, organizations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Winnipeg is a city. I think we have the, like, I think Winnipeg as a city has the
1: largest urban Indigenous population. We do, yeah. Lots of, obviously, like, chances to connect and organize and build things like the Friendship Center, which sounds so like instrumental and valuable yeah and it sounds like even before they have a building they're already kind of
0: getting going they're they're doing like outside activities like gardening classes and stuff until they have like a physical space which I think is really neat
1: oh fun so we're circling back around uh, now to the Jets I think it's so funny that like obviously we knew the Jets were going to factor into the series especially this final little bit Yeah, and then we talked to uh, John K. Sampson and His take on it was more like, we couldn't afford to keep them, which is such a funny way to start talking about the Jets. So thankfully, uh, Carter Chen comes on and talks a bit more about how excited he is the Jets are back.
9: My name is Carter Chen. Uh, Yeah, right now, I am a content creator uh, for Tourism Winnipeg, Travel Manitoba, Downtown Winnipeg Biz. I love supporting uh, small businesses in Winnipeg. I love supporting local. My day job, I I work for the bank, uh, but my side uh, hobby passion is definitely content creation and just being a cheerleader of Winnipeg. I I love Winnipeg. There's lots of negativity, lots of pessimism. But there's lots of uh, bad talk, but I feel like my content, I, I I try to inspire the positive notes and silver linings and and great great talents that we have here in winnipeg especially with our restaurants uh, any events and our sports teams go sea bears i'm wearing my sea bears gear <laughs> i just think winnipeg just has so much character to it right but uh yeah no winnipeg uh in the past has lots of fun memories like i just you know and the connections we have with everyone here in the city it, i i just i feel the love i could go out and i can run into someone that i Went to school with at the University of Winnipeg like, you know, uh, you know, 20 years ago though, and we could just chit chat, just just pick up where we left off. I just love that uh, when you're out and about in Winnipeg, you always find someone that you know, you know, it's like a three degrees of separation, right? In, in Winnipeg, it's like a big, small town. So that's what I love about Winnipeg. And I'm going to Winnipeg Jets hockey games uh, at the old Winnipeg Arena with with my dad. Uh, we would my my parents yeah come from a pretty uh yeah humble humble uh, beginnings right. My I would come from immigrant parents. My parents came to Canada in 1979. They met on the way to Canada. So yeah, we lived in the core. But my dad, you know, he worked hard, worked in the factories, and uh, saved enough to take me to Jets game So that definitely was a highlight early on for me uh, when I was younger. When the Jets left, that was a really sad moment for me as a child. Like when they left, that was just a just heartbreaking, but most memorable. Yeah. When the Winnipeg Jets came back, when the Jets came back, uh, I remember trying to trying to make plans to duck out and get to Portage and Maine and celebrate and have that big party with all the Jets fans. It's just, it's just amazing. Right. So, Oh, when they came back, it was, oh, it was, it was a big party. People are, we, it's it like, we won the Stanley cup, <laughs> Everyone was was rocket getting going in the closets, taking for trying to find their old jets gear. And uh yeah, we we were rocketed. I, I remember being at that that first preseason game. It was just a preseason game, but it was like, yeah, this is the this is like the first Jets game. It didn't mean anything, but I remember uh Dustin Bufflin within the first 15 seconds just laying the biggest hit on this Columbus Blue Jackets player. And that, that crowd, we just it just erupted, right? It was just so loud. But yeah, no, I've been a, a Winnipeg Jets 2.0 season ticket holder since day one when they, they first came back, right? But yeah, no, uh, the Jets 1.0. Hey, I, I could only maybe go to one or two games a season. My dad was working in the factories. That's all he could afford. And I cherish those times in the 80s and, and 90s of the Jets and uh, support to this day
0: yeah so I mean you know I kind of I kind of joke about like being disinterested but like you know if things make people happy and make them proud of Winnipeg I'm happy that we have
1: them right yeah and also I can kind of relate a little bit to like you know when you do when you do this as a kid with your family especially when it's like a rare thing it's such like it's such a special experience because I remember going to see a um, one Manitoba Moose game with my dad I think and I don't remember the game. I was not like a little kid that was overly interested in hockey or the moose. But I remember mostly spilling snow cones on my pants. <laughs> or like, I understand when you like go to something and this is like special memory and this is like your team and it's a thing that you and your dad have always done. How much it would like hurt to lose that.
0: Yeah, totally. I, I thought it was really funny that, I mean, there are different perspectives, I guess on this. Like John Samson was saying that, um, you know, he's he's sort of, not so interested in the current Jets, because they're, like, the zombie Jets to him. Yeah,
1: yeah. But Well, I remember, like, the excitement about the Jets coming back. I actually, even as a person who's not super into hockey, I also remember it. Well, yeah, I mean, there was, like, a huge thing at Portage in Maine. Obviously, this happened in 20, 2010, and I was not, like, in the city. I think 2011? I was, 2011. Was I, okay. 20, I was in grade 10 or grade 11 at the time, so I was not in Winnipeg and I was in band class in high school and a girl in the grade younger than me who was not in my class comes running into the band room and yells <laughs> the Jets are back yeah and then leaves and there's just chaos in the room oh man it's so, like if that was the uh, impact on Morris high school I can only imagine what it would have been like in the city I was going to say just like the 2010s are kind of like a big and interesting time for the city. Like the Jets come back, which is like r- big return of like Winnipeg nostalgia
8: mm-hmm.
1: and like a core part of our identity is the city in like the modern era. But then in 2013, we get kind of this call back to a much older identity and like the reclamation of that. Awesome. So my name is
3: Katharina Vermette. I'm a writer, um, Michif writer here in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, what is now known as Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada.
5: Oh,
3: Winnipeg. Um, when I think of Winnipeg, I always think of back in the day, old school Facebook, when you had to like list your relationship status and everybody was like, it's complicated. I love that it's com- I, I I held on to that it's complicated for a long time. Um, but that's kind of my relationship with Winnipeg. I love this town. I'm from this town. I am like every muscle and piece of me is from this town and but at the same time it's it's a hard city to love sometimes um i love the history of this place like we're literally a city built on resistance um and a city that has returned to that spirit of resistance over and over and over again we are an incredibly indigenous city we are built on indigenous resistance repeated indigenous resistance and Um, But at the same time, we are also an incredibly racist city with a lot of really ugly stories and tragedies and ongoing tragedies and practices that will someday go away because they have to and things have to change. But at the same time, it's really sad to be to be in it and it's hard to be in it on March 8th, 2013. The very very long court case of the MMF, the Manitoba Métis Federation versus Canada, was succeeded in the Supreme Court, um, and essentially what this meant was that um, Canada was recognizing that the um, relationship it signed on to in the Manitoba Act with the Métis people who wrote the Ma- helped write the Manitoba Act um, was not honored. So basically, it gave us. And I'm explaining it like a poet. I'm explaining it like a citizen. I'm not a lawyer would be better off explaining exactly all of the nuances of what it means. But to me, it meant this incredible validation that the history that I've been taught, that has been carried through generations to me, um, is valid, and that the relationship that the crown undertook with us was not honored um, and needed to be. I feel I feel like I could talk about this forever, and maybe just to cut in some details around the court case, is that the court case actually stems from everything about this place. It's the creation of the Manitoba Act in 1870, which promised 100 or 1. 1.4 million acres to the um, children of Red River Métis, in, which included all of Winnipeg and, and much of the river along the river systems in southern Manitoba. Um, that was never honored. And... Um, it's a really interesting court case in that I don't want Winnipegers, non-Metis Winnipegers to be afraid. I mean, think land claims of like this doesn't mean that we're gonna, you know, overtake Winnipeg and um and get all that land back. But what it does mean is that we're in this agreement now with the Crown in order to get um provisions and ma- many of the things that were lost when when this land was taken from us because it was it's not just the land that's taken it's all of the the wealth that subsequently comes after that for many generations so it it is a new beginning you know it's a new agreement it's a new way of looking at this place for me i think it's a new way of looking at this place as that it it was ours and it was taken from us in, and it was wrong to be taken from us. But at the same time now, however many years later, I, you know, I'm a poet, what's the math, 153 years later, um, we can kind of go into that n- with a new understanding, and then, you know, and start a good way.
0: As Katharina says, this case was finally won by the MMF, and it had actually been going through the court since 1981. Oh, my God. That's, I mean, we talked about the Josh Farré case, which started, you know, around the same time. And that was a long case, I thought. But this is, you know, what is that, 23 years? No, more. 33. 33 30, years.
1: Yeah. 32. 32 years. We'll get there. So part <laughs> the of this. I also with the Georges Farré case is that there was a, or not that one, but the follow-up, was that there was a brief moment where Manitoba's laws were deemed unconstitutional and that case was resolved quicker than this one. Yeah, right. So, this, I mean, similarly to that, goes through a bunch of different
0: levels of government. There's like a loss, a loss, and then a big win in the Supreme Court, which is the one mm-hmm. that really matters, right, at the end of the day. And part of the dispute originates in the government's use of scrip to distribute the land agreed upon in the Manitoba Act. And that's like a huge, complicated topic that I'm sure we'll do an episode on at some point, but it's on our list. It's on our list, but suffice to say, Métis script was disorganized it was complex probably deliberately so almost almost definitely made very very hard to claim yeah and so only a very small percentage of the land that had been agreed upon in the Manitoba Act was ever actually in the hands of Métis inhabitants
1: and a lot of that land was then either purchased or sold by settlers to make like exorbitant profits
0: yeah, there was a lot of land speculation based on it. So it's it's a historic wrong, which was recognized in 2013. Um, the downside is that although the Supreme Court recognized, like, yes, that was done incorrectly, they didn't really offer any kind of remedy. They weren't like, and here's the solution. It was
1: basically just a recognition. Yeah, I mean, what do you propose as a solution to that, I guess, is kind of yeah. the...
0: Yeah, I mean, I was talking about this with Katharina as well, that it's like, it's so hard to rectify a wrong that's that old. But, you know, she was saying that she tries to look at it as at least, you know, a, a, you have to look going forward. Yeah. But I do find it interesting how often the Manitoba
1: Act has come up in the episodes we've done. Like, I guess it shouldn't be surprising that, like, our, essentially our founding constitution as a province has played a role.
0: No, I suppose it shouldn't. But I think, like... Canadians don't talk about the Constitution as much
1: as, like, Americans do, right? No, that's true. And yeah, I mean, also, like, how often do Manitobans talk about anything other than Riel on the strike?
0: Yes, well, (laughs) but I mean, this is Riel. It's just, you know, just the, like, um, the maybe the more boring kind of legally
1: the legally No one wants to talk about.
0: Yes, but... I don't know it's interesting i it gives me a lot of respect for those people that at the time were like no we really need to negotiate these things because they saw
1: forward into the future and yeah and like obviously these are like issues that are then coming up a hundred years down the line they're finally like being talked about yeah so yeah Yeah. in theory a well-planned document in some cases and then
0: a lot of it has been has been ignored, for sure. Um, Katharina also mentioned in that clip when she was talking about like her relationship to Winnipeg that Winnipeg can be a deeply racist city, and she's definitely not the first person to say that or to think that.
1: No, so I'm sure you remember, and I'm sure many of the listeners do as well, uh, that 2015 McLean's article with the front cover reading, Canada has a bigger race problem than America and it's ugliest in Winnipeg. And this article is coming out in the wake of the murder of Tina Fontaine, a 14-year-old girl from said King First Nation who's found dead in the Red River, um, the death of Brian Sinclair, an Indigenous man who died after waiting 34 hours in a Winnipeg emergency room. And it signs a number of polls and studies and like firsthand experiences from Indigenous Manitobans arguing that Manitoba has the highest level of racism in the country. Yeah. And I remember a little bit This is, I guess, back when I was more on, like, Facebook, the pushback to that from, I mean, white settlers, mostly. Sure. I don't know what you remember about this so much. We were, like, this was pretty early into our friendship, I don't know how much it would have come up.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do remember it being a thing. I think I was at the U of W at the time, so I think I was in an environment that was pretty, um sympathetic to the points made in the article but I certainly remember people like online especially being Mm -hmm. pretty upset about it um certain radio hosts who I won't mention Mm gotten to like big things
1: about it yeah and I mean what I like because I was also at the UMW at the time and the thing with most of the comments about it that I remember hearing and most of the pushback to it were often essentially proving the point of the article yeah right that like we don't As a city, institutionally and systemically value Indigenous perspective invoices.
0: Yeah. No, and I do wonder, looking back at it, if part of the pushback wasn't also the comparison to the U.S., because I think one thing that Canadians really like to do is to favorably compare ourselves to the U.S., to say, like, okay, well, we have this problem, but at least
1: it's not as bad as what the Americans are doing, right? Right. Yeah, that's true. I guess if you say like, "Oh, we're worse in the U.S.," it really like kind of pops that like balloon of like moral self righteousness that we've been trying to use to get away yeah. with everything for so long.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So to say like, "No, Winnipeg is actually more racist than you know than America," I think it really upset a lot of people. That's for sure. I do think that that rhetoric has changed a little bit. I will say like, this is totally just like me kind of evaluating things and not based on any kind of facts but like I went back and found the old like reddit threads from when that I article was doing came the same out thing. <laughs> oh, that's funny <laughs> and I did feel that the way people were talking about it I don't know that at least on reddit I, I don't know that they could still get away with talking about it
1: yeah that's true I, it's changed a little bit I'm sure if you go not into as... like the depths of like a facebook thread you'd find some of the worst things you've ever read. Yeah, but oh yeah
0: no i I mean no we haven't solved racism in the last eight and a half years certainly what? but <laughs> but i do think the tone has shifted maybe a little bit and hopefully we'll continue to do so
1: i don't know i do feel like part of what I, like when i've been thinking about this too i almost wondered a little bit if it was like payer says there's like an instinctive reaction to criticism mm-hmm. that doesn't come from us yeah so i'm wondering too if on some level it was like oh like it's like, ah, oh, McLean's is like dumping on Winnipeg. How dare they? And that's there was true. some like really instinctive defensiveness that then meant that like the point of the article was missed. Yeah, that's true. And actually, like
0: framing, framing it that way, actually, I think, gives me a little more empathy maybe towards the people who had a really strong reaction to it in that way. Because, you know, I can relate to like, uh, you know, not wanting people from like Toronto to be like dumping on Winnipeg.
1: Or, like, I don't know, it does feel sometimes nice when other people talk about Winnipeg, it's like, you don't get it, you're not, like, from here. Yeah. But, it's like, the article is full of so many first-hand accounts and stories of Indigenous people in the city. Yes, no, it's so like it's If pretty... you get past, like, that initial, like, oh, how dare they? Yeah. It makes a case pretty clearly and fairly correctly mm-hmm. that Winnipeg has a huge systemic issue with racism, which I don't think is a shock to anyone in the year
0: 2023. No. Um
1: yeah the next person we talked to though
0: i think like i'm trying to think of how to put this i i think maybe had a slightly more sort of optimistic view on how things yeah. are or how they're going now
10: my name is uh, Geraldine jeraldine and my spirit names are sky woman and northern lights woman and i come from the bear clan and I'm a grandmother, a great grandmother, and um, a knowledge keeper here in Winnipeg. And I, uh, I'm uh, most importantly, I'm a nine-year residential school survivor. I moved here in 2010, and uh, I've come to love Winnipeg. Like you know, it's very. Um, it's very dear to me, it's, uh, it's so filled with, um, with the uh, voice and challenges. And I like the challenges of Winnipeg and uh, just bringing voice to the injustices that, uh, that happen. Like, you know, it's, uh, and I know that uh, bringing that voice brings change. And I know that Winnipeg listens, like, you know, to those voices and listens to my voice. In um, early June of 2021, the youth here in Winnipeg, the Indigenous youth, they uh, asked us survivors, residential school survivors, if they could uh, have a sacred fire, a four-day sacred fire. and we we gifted them that permission to to light that sacred fire for four days and the reason why they lit the sacred fire was to bring attention to the two fifteen children um burial sites that were found on, on Kamloops in Kamloops BC and uh, Winnipeg wanted to show their support to Kamloops and there was also support coming uh, across Turtle Island as well, like, you know, to the 215 children. Uh, it was a, a time of um, loss. It was a time of grief. And um, more specifically, it was a time, uh, a triggering time for us residential school survivors. And then, and what really, um, what really s- set base for me was uh, they find they're finally hearing our truth, like you know the not just here in Winnipeg but across Canada and and it caught and it got international attention, like you know it was uh, I remember that week just being interviewed by BBC, New York Times, like you know all those. Um, Uh, media outlets, they were so, um, they wanted to know that, that history of residential school. But when the youth um, lit the fire that first day, it started out small, and there were just a few of them. And then the next day, the elders, the knowledge keepers, the survivors, we came. And we sat in that circle with the youth for those four days. And each day the Winnipeg came and showed their support and their love, like, you know, by visiting um, the fire, offering tobacco to the fire, but also showing that love to the survivors and to the two fifteen children. So what happened was, People were bringing uh, little moccasins, shoes, teddy bears, little teepees. Like, just it was that the legislative steps were getting filled with uh, all these gifts that people were bringing for for the children, and it was, uh, and not just the children. Like you know, the T R C. Um, had previously announced in 2015 that there was probably about four to six thousand children that, that passed away while in residential school, eh? So, but it, it, uh, it amplified the TRC's findings, like, you know, the 215 children that amplified our voice. And, and during that time, I, um, uh, I was so taken back by the community coming each and every day to to show that support and and by the when we did the closing ceremony like you know we had um we had a birthday cake like you know for the 215 because I don't know if you guys are aware like in residential school survivors never got to celebrate their birthdays so we wanted to celebrate and honor them with uh with a cake and just to acknowledge you know their time in residential school and their birthday time and then also the other survivors that were still here right but it brought the survivors together it brought organizations people were setting up teepees and uh, it was just so beautiful what we seen and at that time i seen a different part of Winnipeg. like you know i i i seen that uh, they were listening to us and they heard us and they heard our truth and they were gonna walk with us and support us and and I just really loved pig that time.
1: <laughs> so like we, this is like recent enough that obviously we both have like pretty strong memories of this event. And yeah, like I remember talking to you about like the discovery of the like cemetery or the graveyards and Kamloops mm-hmm. and the stuff that came out afterwards. And then like, also- I
0: seem to remember it being pretty close to just like before Canada Day and i remember us you know being like do we want to post anything for Canada Day and being kind of like no no, no. we
1: don't no i mean it's hard to it feels hard to celebrate a country when this is what's part of our past right yeah but um, then like the, i don't know what was really nice about talking to um Geraldine Chingus was like the ca- connections she like felt and developed in the community that came out to support them yeah like that was nice to hear it was it was really nice to hear that
0: she feels heard that she feels that people are listening you know for whatever mm-hmm. that's worth um I I lived right by the legislative building when all this was going on and you know there there was like a palpable energy yeah and people were there for a long time and and like the events that that followed that discovery also led to the toppling of the Queen Victoria statue if you
1: remember Mm -hmm. that
0: do you remember we were asked I can't remember by who to do some kind of interview on
1: that right and then we were both like we don't know if we're the ones to talk to no (laughs) not us well I think what we also felt at the time was that it
0: wasn't something that we could talk about in like a 30 second soundbite
1: no and also I don't know I feel like my like my general stances as like an everyday person is, it's just a statue. Yeah. So like, yeah, I would, I get toppling it. And I think that like that bit where it was knocked over and there were the red hands all over Mm -hmm. it was such like an effective visual. Yeah. For like how people were feeling and the emotion of that time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the comparisons that was made at the time was to that iconic visual of the streetcar being pushed over in 1919. Mm-hmm. which I, I think is a pretty valid comparison. We're just a
1: city that loves tipping things over sometimes. We, you know,
0: <laughs> we just love, just love pushing over a heavy thing. No, but you know, sometimes I guess, you know, the the sort of injustice and the rage just becomes too much and it's expressed outwardly. I, I can't get too mad at that personally. I know people have different feelings, but that's, that's how I feel. Yeah. Going back to that clip, I really related to Geraldine Shingoose's um her comment on just like having or what she what, what did she say that she loves Winnipeg's challenges I think yeah that's, that's what been I like rattling
1: around in my head a lot too
0: yeah and like what a
1: wonderful way to look at a place that needs to be better <laughs> yeah it's so like deeply and fundamentally flawed but then you hear that when we talked with like we'll get to I think like the final review of everything in a bit but with like um Katharina and uh John as well complicated feeling of loving a place and hating it at the same time yeah absolutely so like obviously in the past like decade and even a little longer more and more we've been trying to i think grapple with the like colonial legacy of Winnipeg which is i don't I don't know if complicated is the right word but it's like a long long legacy
0: it's long. There's there's a lot to unpack there. You're not going to resolve everything that happened over hundreds of years in ten years, but yeah, we see this a lot
1: in like more recent history with like the McLean's article trying to confront some of the more ugly realities of the city with the uh, sacred fire in front of the ledge, the protests about the discoveries at residential schools, and the shows of support for survivors and community members from both indigenous people and settlers mm-hmm. in a way that i think we might not have seen like 40 years ago yeah yeah totally and then like even in the way downtown is developing there's a bit more sign of like like thought towards that process because obviously uh coming all the way back around to the bay yep the very end of this in April of 2022, the Bay's massive downtown flagship store is gifted to the Southwest Chiefs Association for a massive $130 million redevelopment project. Yeah. And, like, the symbolism of it, I think, is interesting, too. The, like, gifting of this, like, really physical embodiment of, like, colonization, this deeply colonial institution mm-hmm. to an indigenous group to basically do with it what they will. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I,
0: I don't know, I have so many, so many feelings about that building. Um, I, like, was so sad when it closed, but I'm also, like, so excited to see what comes next for it. I'm, like, I'm so happy also that there is someone
1: who wants that building. Yeah, well, we went to the U of W. Do you remember when it was, they offered it to the Bay, or they offered it to the U of W for, like, a dollar? Yeah, and the U
0: of W was like, no, that's too <laughs> much work.
1: Gonna- they can't afford that building. Yeah. Because the reality yeah. of my is a building. I was involved in, like, the heritage community in Winnipeg at the time when this was happening. So this was, like, a big topic. Mm-hmm. Is that the square footage of the store is so wide that, like, any redevelopment basically involves cutting a chunk of it out to just add, like, the amount of windows legally <laughs> required for a building today.
0: Right, yeah, because the, the whole center of it doesn't have any natural lighting. So you can't, like, put apartments in there because... That would never work. Yeah, so it looks like what they're planning now is kind of like an atrium, which I think is really a creative way of approaching it. I, I really hope that it all comes together.
1: Yeah, the plan for the building, in case uh, people haven't heard, is this like really, I mean, it's it was going to be mixed use no matter what, because that building mm-hmm. could never be a single use thing ever again. But like a mix of retail and offices, I think i would heard something about there being like some kind of healthcare center on a floor and affordable housing specifically in the downtown core which would be really really important especially in an area like that mm-hmm. it's lost so much of it to like commercial development and parking lot development over the past 50 years
7: mm-hmm.
1: the building at this point hasn't been developed yet so we actually like at the time of recording this we don't know what will happen i have heard good things from people i know that have seen the inside of the building oh good developers um and hopefully what comes out of it is something like cool and something that we can be proud of because i think we deserve that if nothing else
0: and hopefully like you know as much as i loved the old bay hopefully something that's useful to a lot more people
1: yeah oh god yeah hopefully (laughs) i mean you know it's a lot of the time it's just me wandering around in the coats (laughs) so we'll see what happens i don't know there's there's stuff on the future that i think will be interesting also obviously the Capian barracks have sold are being redeveloped as kind of an urban reserve, hmm. which I think will be really cool to see how that develops too. I don't know. There's there's some cool things happening in the city. And- yeah,
0: I mean, I imagine in classic Winnipeg fashion, every construction project will be behind schedule and, you know, yeah, well, over budget. But I think that's maybe just every
1: construction project I in think the it's history the of the of world. Every construction project, we just only paid attention to construction projects in Winnipeg. Yes. <laughs> I think that's probably more what's going on. I had to guess. It's
0: entirely possible, but eventually, I think there'll hopefully be something pretty cool there.
1: Now, that brings us to today, to late 2023. Yeah. The city has changed a lot over the past, like, 16 episodes of this series. Mm-hmm. When we started, there weren't roads. Right. Technically, when we started, there were glaciers. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been a while but one of the first things I asked when we started recording the series is what our relationship to Winnipeg was. And my plan was to come back and ask it again at the end. Mm -hmm. So Alex, what is your relationship to Winnipeg? Yeah. I mean, it's
0: complicated, which is what, (laughs) which is what a lot of people have told us. Um, yeah. I mean, I do think working on the series has changed things for me a little bit. I think like, Going back so early, I think, has in some ways, even though my family hasn't been here since, you know, we, my family's only been here since, I don't know, 1960-ish. I think it made me feel more rooted here in some way that, you know, just to have that knowledge of of what this place was like so long ago. Um, I think also, though, working on this final episode, I have to say, has... I think, increased my, like, affection meter for Winnipeg pretty significantly. And I can tell you why. It's because we reached out to a lot of people who we were like, they're never, like, we're just going to have to fill this episode with our, like, friends and family. Like, these people are not going to respond to us. Um, And, and we got a lot of responses, some saying, like, I would love to, but I just can't right now. Yeah, yeah, we had a couple people who, like, couldn't because they were too busy. But, yeah, we got a lot of people on this who, like, were really significant to me in my life
1: yeah um, you know we've I both- mean, we've we both collected all of our beloved children's entertainers yeah we've both cried over weaker than songs specifically one weaker than song but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i've cried at both al simmons and fred penner's concerts as children yeah
0: um, oh, and I've definitely cried at The Break, Katharina Vermette's uh, novel. Right, so. yeah, of course. <laughs> crying. I don't know why I'm talking about everyone I've cried at in this episode. <laughs> but um, no, I think that was like really eye-opening for me about what kind of city this is. That like, I'm like, hey, I'm no one and I have a podcast just like every other millennial. Would you please <laughs> come talk to me? And like so many people were like, yeah, of course.
1: Yeah, and so willing to share not just, like, a story, but, like, share their feelings and their opinions yeah. on that with us, right?
0: Yeah, totally. But, no, I mean, I think, yeah, my relationship with Winnipeg remains complicated. I mean, we're in November now. I don't think I'm ever going to get over the way the weather is here. And, you know, Ron Robinson talked about the fact that, like, we need to do better for, like, mobility in this city, right? Like, I'm starting to think about that with how the how the streets are looking already.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's getting, yeah, it's getting icy out again, so.
0: Exactly. Um. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of things we need to do better, but I do think that this is a place where those opportunities are there. I, it feels small enough that you can make a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't feel sort of drowned out in Winnipeg in the way you might in a bigger city.
1: I don't know. Does yeah, that all make sense? Close. Makes sense to me. Yeah. How about you? I feel like the last episode too has been like really big. Mm-hmm. And I th- i mean, I think it's just having other people like share their feelings, right? Normally it's just kind of the two of us. That's true. And like, I know how you feel about Winnipeg and you know how I feel about Winnipeg because we talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. And at the start of it, I think I had talked a bit, like at the start of the series, I had talked a bit about how like working in tourism had kind of made me like see a lot more of Winnipeg's good side. Because I was seeing Winnipeg from the perspective of like outsiders for the first time. People that, like, didn't grow up in Manitoba and didn't have, like, the baggage Mm -hmm. that we all kind of accumulate over the years. And I think with this series, with this final episode, and with some of, like, my own, like, work outside of this, what I've been seeing a lot more is not, like, seeing, like, Winnipeg through the eyes of, like, us, I guess? Yeah. So, like, I've been thinking a lot about, like, loving Winnipeg for its challenges, which I think is such a lovely way to put it. Mm Mm-hmm. So much that speaks to, like, how I approach the city. Yeah. But then, like, so much of what makes Winnipeg great is not, like, the city or, like, the civic institution or anything like that. Because I think a lot of people we talk to don't have a lot of, like, love for Winnipeg as, like, a civic body. Right. What they have a love for is... The people in the city and their communities and i think we see that in like the episodes we did for the series too mm-hmm. right like a lot of the people we talked about were people that were fighting often against the city yeah but for like the betterment of like their community their kin and i don't know i think what's been really standing out to me is that there's so many people in winnipeg that are willing to fight these like uphill battles against winnipeggers themselves sometimes in our own resistance to uh progress um but they'll, like, fight to try and give us arts organizations that matter to change things for the better. And I think if so many people see Winnipeg as worth fighting for, maybe they're right.
0: That's that's such a lovely point. Yeah.
1: I've really been thinking about this a lot. I
0: mean, you know, Katharina talked about that as well, that this is a city of uh, resistance over and over. <laughs> um, and in some ways that's frustrating. You're like, why do we have to resist all the time? Why can't it be easy?
1: But it's just kind of built into who we
0: are, I think. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I I just keep going back to that thing that Geraldine Shingu said about loving the city for its challenges. Yeah, I'll go, I'll be at more uh, city council meetings in the next couple of years, I'm sure, once again. Yeah, and I mean, I think like that's kind of the note that I wanted to end on was that like, you don't have to love Winnipeg. I don't think, I don't know if I would say that I love
1: Winnipeg. No, I wouldn't say that either, necessarily. If I'm talking to someone from outside of the city, I will, but I'm lying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying if, to If trick you're listening
0: them. to this from outside the city, you didn't hear that part. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, like, I'll try and, like, talk it up a little bit to people from outside of the city, because I feel like it gets a, like, a worse rap than it maybe deserves.
0: Yeah, no, but, like, what I was going to say was, um, like, I don't know that I would say that I love the city, and I don't think people need to love the city, or even really like the city but I think it's so important to be involved and to get to know the place that you live yeah even even just for your own sake if nothing else it's so sad to live in a place that you refuse
1: to engage with yeah and I think like I don't know my feelings towards Winnipeg are a lot more complicated now they're sort of like paying attention and being involved and like getting like talking to other community members and all of this stuff but like my life is so much more like fulfilled for it and i feel so much more rooted to this place than i might if i wasn't involved in like i don't know i feel like the way we should end something like this is talk about like the next 150 years but like there's no way to predict that no
0: um no there there really isn't and like i think like for for me and you because we're historians and that's kind of how our brain works like one of the ways The big way for us to get to know our city and to understand it is through history, through understanding what happened in the past. But that doesn't have to be your way. That doesn't have to be everyone's way. Right. There are so
1: many ways to understand the place where you live. Yeah, totally. And I mean, there's all kinds of like Winnipeg has a lot of opportunities to get involved and get engaged and meet people You're just going to have to like look for it. We don't always make it easy. This is the thing. I think
0: in some cities, maybe it's easier to find those. You do just have to look a tiny
1: little bit. It takes some work. But like, I promise if you work and you get involved, it will be worth it in the long run. And like, if we all do that, Winnipeg might wind up being just like a little bit better in the end.
0: Yeah. You know, maybe we can like be, you know, a little more great and a little less great with the air
1: quotes. Could be we could great adjacent. We can be good. One good city. One one fine city. One passable city. (laughs) Do you think we've done it? Have we done 150-ish years of Winnipeg history? Do you feel satisfied, Alex? I feel good. Oh good. I do too. It's crazy to think that we did this. I know. I think we're both very tired. (laughs) Well, you're also sick. I am very sick. So yeah, thank you so much for sticking with us on this like big and very ambitious project. It's I think the biggest thing either of us have ever done, except for maybe you doing your master's thesis. I think I legitimately did more work for this than I
0: did for my master's thesis. <laughs> I might have I might have done more work on the Goulet episode than I did on my
1: master's <laughs> thesis. So this is uh, how hard we've worked on this project, and clearly yeah. how much we're putting into caring for the city in our own way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you all for sticking with us. Uh, thank you to the Manitoba Historical Society, uh, the Province of Manitoba's Heritage Fund, the uh, Centennial Inst- or Centennial Grant through the Winnipeg Foundation, all of our patrons, all of our listeners, uh, to our friend and producer Nick, who has been the best cheerleader we could have asked for through all of this planning. And I guess thank you to Winnipeg with a big old question mark. Oh, and of course, thank you to all of our guests on this episode and across the series. It yeah, has been so, much. so rewarding to have people who are so willing to come on and help tell the story of the city, the good, the bad, and the very ugly often. Mm-hmm. So some housekeeping notes before we finish off the series. Um, we're going to take a quick break because we need to sleep for two months straight. <laughs> so you're not going to be hearing from us really until uh, 2024. We'll be back in February with a fun new episode. Uh, We'll still be putting out Patreon stuff though, so if you want to check us out on patreon.com forward slash One Great History, we'll be putting out fun new bonus episodes there. And of course, we'll be sharing stuff on our website, onegreathistory.wordpress.com, and social media, which is One Great History on Facebook and Instagram, and the number one Great History on Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you in 2024, after we've had a very, very long nap.